Challenging the United Nations to explain how $6 billion could solve world hunger. If they do, he went on, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Now let's rewind for context. This Twitter exchange was rooted in a direct appeal made five days earlier on CNN by David Beasley, who's the head of the UN's World Food Program, or WFP for short. The plea was set against the backdrop of escalating global challenges, including conflict, climate change, and the prolonged impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. These factors collectively intensified the global hunger crisis, creating an unprecedented and urgent need for significant contributions from world leaders. But they were already dealing with medical crises, printing and dropping money all over to their citizens, supply chain meltdowns, and of course, the correct course to navigate an airborne virus. So Beasley suggested another route. Lives are at stake. I'm not picking on Elon Musk. I'm so happy that he's making money. But as you know, during the height of COVID, billionaires made extraordinary amounts of money. Governments are tapped out. We've got people dying and we've got an answer to this. And please help us on this one time ask. Please help us. You're calling on billionaires, as you said, because governments are tapped out. You're at this crucial moment. A one-time contribution from the ultra-wealthy. Beasley framed this request as a vital reaction to what he termed a perfect storm of global distress. Beasley's ask wasn't made flippantly when considering the eye-popping accumulation of wealth among elites like Musk during this time. So in the scheme of their rapidly expanding billions, a fraction of a percent directed to address global famine seems reasonable. The following day, after Elon Musk's response, CNN updated its headline to more accurately state that Musk's wealth could help solve world hunger rather than solving it entirely. Oh, that's weird. The media actually makes mistakes like that. Amid this discourse, Beasley pointed Musk towards the organization's extensive financial transparency. Beasley emphasized that you know, I, I, this is fantastic news because Elon's a very, very smart guy. And for him to even enter into this conversation is a game changer because simply put, we can answer his questions. We can put forward the plan that's clear. And it came. A comprehensive breakdown of the WFP's plan was published on November 15th. This plan shared by Beasley on Twitter and specifically addressing Musk meticulously details how the funds would have been distributed across different regions and the top 10 countries set to benefit. It included thorough allocations of resources for food, information on cash and food vouchers, program development, and logistics. And so came Musk's response. Here, I'll play a little audio of it for you. That's right, crickets. No acknowledgement from Musk 
despite the meticulously outlined proposal. His Twitter bravado? Fleeting once specifics were furnished. Then something caught the eye of the media. In a February 2022 filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, undisclosed charity in mid to late November, this donation closely coincided with the timing of the publication of the WFP's plan. So at first glance, this seemed like a monumental act of philanthropy from the world's wealthiest individual. However, months would pass and major charities, including the United Nations World Food Program, reported receiving no funds from this donation. Must put $6 billion into a foundation, but I, everybody thought it came to us, but we ain't got any of it yet. So I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, I don't know what it's going to take. We're, we're trying every angle. You know, uh, Elon, we need your help, brother. Moreover, no other charitable organization has stepped forward to claim the funds. This leads to an intriguing question. Where did Elon Musk's substantial donation go? Well, speculation at the time was that the probable destination for Musk's sizable donation was a donor-advised fund, also referred to as a DAF. This is an increasingly popular mechanism among billionaires. And this is where our story starts. Our introduction into the perplexing world of elite philanthropy a place where billionaires and CEOs don metaphorical capes of kindness, all the while artfully sidestepping the intense scrutiny often associated with immense wealth and fame. But peel back this veneer of generosity, and you'll find a more calculated game at play. In this high-stakes chess of wealth accumulation, charity isn't just a noble gesture. It's a shrewd maneuver in the grand theater of corporate strategy a place where the art of giving morphs into an engine for multiplying riches. But find out for yourself in an episode I'm calling The Charity Laundromat, The Facade of Elite Philanthropy. Watch out, you might get what you're after. of philanthropy sits on a spectrum. On one end lies heartfelt humanitarianism, while naked self-interest occupies the other. For most of the public, giving falls somewhere in between. But in recent decades, elite philanthropy has witnessed a troubling shift toward the selfish end of this continuum. A big part of this shift revolves around the increased use of donor-advised funds, or DAFs, a donor-advised fund is used when you wish to be more intentional with your charitable giving. An instrument that, while offering convenience and tax benefits to donors, raises questions about the true spirit of giving and the flow of philanthropic dollars. A DAF operates much like a philanthropic bank account. The donor-advised fund, they provide many tax and charitable giving advantages. Here, wealthy individuals can deposit money, earning immediate tax deductions. However, unlike donations to charities, the funds in a DAF can remain indefinitely, sometimes never reaching the working charities they were ostensibly meant to support. The donor-advised fund is where your charitable contribution sits until you are prepared to make a donation to a specific charity. Investment returns in this lounge compound tax-free. Compound tax-free. Compound tax-free. Compound tax-free. <laughs> Donor-advised funds aren't exactly the new kids on the philanthropic block. They've been hanging around since the days of the Great Depression. The original idea, make it simpler for people who weren't rolling in dough to continue to contribute to charities. It was a win-win. Get a tax break and buy some time to decide which causes really tug at those heartstrings. The process was meant to be as smooth as butter. However, it wasn't until the 1990s that DAFs really took the spotlight. This surge in popularity came on the heels of tighter IRS regulations that made 
running private foundations, a hassle for many donors. But the real game changer for DAFs was when investment heavyweights like Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard got the IRS green light in the 1990s to establish charities offering these types of accounts. And it may shock you to know this, but this move wasn't really about philanthropy. It was a strategic play to rake in the fees. Take Fidelity Charitable, for instance. They've got over $50 billion in assets, and more than half of that is invested in Fidelity's own products as of June 2021. That's a pretty fat stack of banknotes that can earn them up to $90 million in management fees each year. Not too shabby, but Fidelity Charitable will tell their clients that these fees are a steal compared to other grant-making methods. You know, the ones that are meant to be distributed to people who actually use them instead of using it as a tax-free money multiplier, I guess? And as DAFs continued to gain traction, Wall Street giants like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley jumped on the bandwagon, setting up their own nonprofits to sponsor these funds. Financial advisors often maintained control over the charitable dollars even after they were transferred to DAFs and were key in promoting these. They highlighted the benefits. Donors could decide when to distribute the funds, and the administrative side of philanthropy was drastically simplified. This simplicity was so appealing that many wealthy individuals closed down their private foundations in favor of DAFs. But in practice, the lack of payout requirements has led to exploitation by ultra-wealthy donors. Billionaires have directed vast fortunes into DAFs, gaining the substantial tax advantages and postponing those disbursements. While DAFs held early promise as an accessible charitable option, their ballooning use for warehousing wealth presents a distortion of the concept's original intention. Let's circle back to Elon Musk's record donation in November 2021. This coincided with his sale of a substantial number of Tesla shares, suggesting more of a legal tax evasion motive rather than pure altruism. find out, Musk is not alone in this practice. Supporters of DAFs would have you believe that these funds ultimately benefit society once they're dispersed, but this argument conveniently overlooks the immediate need for funds by various charities and the significant delay in actual disbursement. The exponential growth highlights the appeal of DAFs to donors, providing a convenient and financially advantageous way to approach philanthropy. However, it also underscores the potential misuse and the deviation from the immediate impactful charitable work that direct donations ensure. The central concern with DAFs lies in their stagnation. It's estimated that at least over $1 trillion currently sits idle in these funds, and I've seen this figure as high as $2 trillion as of 2022. I'd wager that somewhere between the shitload and the fuckton. Both are a lot, and this staggering figure represents a significant loss of potential aid for countless charities and causes that require immediate financial assistance. While the ultra-wealthy can indefinitely defer their philanthropic responsibilities and reap the benefits of tax deductions, this mammoth sum, if properly taxed and spent, could transform American infrastructure, education, healthcare, and more. Instead, it gathers dust in an opaque system seemingly designed to help billionaires hoard, and a shifting understanding of what it means to give. And really, the most amazing part of all is that the vehicles themselves don't align with the government's intentions. Think about it. The government promotes DAFs as a way to encourage wealthy individuals to donate to charity by offering tax deductions. This should reduce the government's bureaucratic involvement in social welfare. However, DAFs function more like Swiss bank accounts, serving as a stashing tool rather than vehicles of aid, and it also creates another contradiction, the paradox of anonymity and self-interest. And this convenient veil for donors, this cloak of invisibility, allows them to strut on the philanthropic stage while concealing the self-serving machinations behind the curtain. 
This lack of transparency has birthed a perverse reality. The wealthy, while soaking in the applause for their generosity, are actually exploiting public subsidies to serve to their own ends, often at the expense of those they claim to help. Let me explain a bit further. The exploitation of DAFs by billionaires is not a mere hypothesis, but a reality evidenced by numerous high-profile cases. Elon Musk's contribution of Tesla stocks in 2021 is a prime example. Similar patterns are seen with other billionaires like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, where enormous sums are funneled into DAFs and family foundations, often remaining unspent or serving the interests of the donors themselves. The problem may lie in the fact that the concept of philanthropy, particularly its tax-exempt aspect, is antiquated, and still primarily the same way it was used in the early 20th century. Oh, you hear the music? Must be time for a quick history lesson. Before the federal income tax was a thing, philanthropy in America was kickstarted by tycoons like Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller. These bigwigs set up their philanthropic organizations before the 16th Amendment brought the income tax into play. When the income tax did roll out, it was pretty minimal, hitting less than 1% of households. Then, World War I happened, and the tax scope broadened dramatically, peaking at a whopping 67%. Lawmakers fretted this would spell doom for private foundations, so they tweaked the 1917 War Revenue Act to protect charitable donations. The logic here was pretty simple. If the wealthy stopped funding public goods like research and libraries, the government would have to pick up the tab. So, the charitable deduction emerged as a savvy fiscal move. A little less tax revenue seemed like a small price to pay for offloading these costs from the government's shoulders. And honestly, government loves to keep this shit off the balance sheets. But post-World War II, the stakes got even higher. The tax code morphed, making it financially smarter for the wealthy to donate stocks rather than keep them. The amount folks could deduct for charity ballooned from 15% of their income in 1917 to 30% by 1954. But here's the rub. These changes, as always, favored the wealthy, big time. Ordinary folks, meanwhile, found the income tax deduction sliding through their fingers. Thanks to the new standard deduction, only 14% of Americans could even claim charity on their taxes. So the rich became rewarded for giving, while everyone else got sidelined. Fast forward to recent times, with the 2017 Republican tax bill further entrenching this divide, a mere 10% of taxpayers itemize, meaning only they get a subsidy for their donations. And they can deduct an awful lot of their income for charitable giving. This begs the question, aren't we cool with a system that subsidizes the wealthy's philanthropy but ignores everyone else's? It seems like a relic from a bygone era that nobody really stands behind anymore. There may be a better way. We could revamp our laws to offer a uniform credit for charitable donations, making it fair for everyone else. I know Canada already is doing something like this, because if we're really serious about fostering philanthropy, propping it up solely for the rich is a bizarre strategy. Donating France funds are this kudzu eating up the world of charitable giving. Donor advice funds are these entities that live in a gray zone in between private foundations and regular, what we think of as public charities. And donor advice funds are really attractive to donors. There's more and more money going into donor advice funds. There's less and less money going to soup kitchens, boys and girls clubs, hospitals, schools, places that are actually providing services. Walk. There is a push to end an increasingly popular type of charitable giving among the wealthy, and that Robert Frank has the story this morning. Robert. Good morning, Andrew. In America, donor advised funds has quadrupled over the past decade. They underfund charities. Say you give a million dollars to a donor advised fund at Fidelity or Schwab, 
you get the immediate deduction of up to $370,000. It grows as an investment and avoids capital gains taxes. And there is no deadline to give it to charity. So it can stay there for, for eternity. eternity. And Robert, just to put a, a fine point on it, the money eventually does have to get to a charity. It's even, I mean, you get the tax break, but it's not, it's not like you can somehow get the money back. No, you're absolutely right. Well, technically on paper, this is true. We all know that the billionaire class has many tools and devices to work around what we see on paper. Billionaire philanthropy often resembles a high-stakes game of financial Tetris with donors masterfully maneuvering through an array of giving vehicles. And I know so far this episode is very daff-heavy in its content, but that's just the newest mechanism that's been exploited by the best accountants and lawyers that money can buy. It's all about diversification private foundations, a medley of donor-advised funds, charitable remainder trusts, lead trusts, and sometimes even good old-fashioned checkbook philanthropy are in play when it comes to shirking commitments to the government, to employees, and the rest of the rank and file. Why don't we let my friends here give you a scenario of just how the rich can skirt these legalities, if you will. Try to imagine a laundromat, if you will, Doc. But instead of cleaning clothes, it's used for cleaning and managing money in the world of charitable giving. This is a good way to understand how the wealthy might use donor-advised funds to their advantage. This is particularly effective when creating family-controlled charities. Here's how the charity laundromat works. Step one, loading the washing machine. Or donating to a DAF. A donor, let's say wealthy individual, puts $1 million into a DAF. Just like loading dirty laundry into a washing machine, this is the first step in the process. And it comes with a perk, an immediate tax deduction, much like dropping off your laundry and getting a receipt. Step two, the washing cycle. Transferring to a family foundation. Next, the DAF transfers $1 million to a charity that the donor controls, such as a family foundation. This is like the washing cycle where the money gets cleaned. It moves from being a private asset to a part of a charitable organization. But then you need... Step three! The spin cycle. Converting to a public charity. Here's where the magic really happens. This family charity, though funded solely by the donor's DAF, now gets classified as a public charity. If we're putting it in terms of the laundry machine, this is like the laundry machine not only cleaning, but transforming the actual nature of the clothes. Let's say from cotton to silk. I don't know a better example. This transformation allows the charity to operate under less stringent IRS rules than a private foundation. Step four, drying and folding. Utilizing the charity's funds. The family can now pay themselves salaries and cover expenses from the charity's funds. It's kind of like taking the clothes that were dropped off to you that are now cleaned and in better condition and using them. Additionally, the charity can support political groups without IRS oversight and on how funds are used, which is akin to folding and stacking your laundry just the way you want it. Step five. Now need to unload the clothes, motherfucker. Or, in other words, there's no payout requirements. Unlike private foundations that are required to distribute a portion of their assets annually, this public charity has no such requirement. So it's kind of like you took in clothes that were meant for someone else, but you keep them at the laundromat as long as you want. And somehow those clothes spawn into new clothes. In essence, staffs are being used to delay distribution to donations, and skirting tighter rules and oversight that typically apply to a private foundation. It's a loophole that the IRS has yet to sew up, allowing this charity laundromat to operate in a way that benefits the wealthy donors more than the intended charitable causes. Some reforms have been proposed, like forcing payouts within five years. Everybody's got an industry. The donor-advised fund industry has lobbied aggressively against these changes. They argue accounts enable more thoughtful giving. Fidelity says 90% of its donations go out within a decade. But median account activity remains opaque, meaning that whenever they're pressed for specifics, Fidelity has said they do not calculate median contributions, investment return, or payout at an account level. 
What this tells me is the current state of the charity framework seems to be flawed on this philosophical level. Wealthy donors who are mostly from the finance industry prioritize metrics over accomplishments. They believe that assets should be invested for maximum return rather than distributed promptly. However, early investment in areas like education can lead to significant long-term societal benefits. These are the things you can't see on paper, the intangible. And nonprofits are becoming more like hedge funds with do-gooder marketing as they assess impact through a strictly financial lens. It's unfortunate that even charity has been financialized. This ignores the unmeasurable good that comes from programs like arts programs for disadvantaged youths. We must not forget that some vital efforts elude the compiling of simple balance sheets and shift our focus from dollars flowing into these funds and judge them by the real impact of our efforts. Is that clear? I hope it is. And the ultra wealthy also have advantages like donating artwork, real estate, and stocks to their own charitable foundation in exchange for more generous tax breaks. And they're supposed to use these assets to serve the public. For instance, art might be put on display where people can see it or stock sold to fund programs that fight child poverty. A ProPublica investigation uncovered that some private foundation donors have been able to claim millions of dollars in tax deductions without fulfilling their obligations to the public. In some cases, these donors have even personally benefited from donations that were intended for the public. For example, this same investigation mentions a tech billionaire who used his foundation to purchase a house for his girlfriend, which he then stayed in with her while going through a divorce. Another real estate mogul keeps his nonprofit art museum in his guest house and has not opened it to the public since before the pandemic. There were a lot of probably worse examples I could use, but this one just to help you see the point here. Because in theory, a private foundation is prohibited from providing no public benefit or the personal use of these assets. But the foundation that I just used as an example can get away with it because rules outlining acceptable public good are vague. For example, Congress has never defined museum accessibility in terms of required operating hours. So they technically can be open hours that no one will ever go to see it or by appointment only and just never make the appointment. Moreover, IRS enforcement capabilities have been steadily eroded. The agency's budget has been repeatedly slashed over the last few decades, down nearly 25% between 2010 and 2021 alone. With fewer auditing resources, oversight of high-earning taxpayers has markedly declined. Despite the recent $60 billion influx for the IRS and the Inflation Reduction Act, some lawmakers continue pushing for IRS funding cuts in negotiations. This sustained assault on IRS funding and authority further weakens accountability for wealthy donors and private foundations who already operate in a hazy regulatory gray area regarding community benefit anyway. This status quo enables exploitation by donors who face little scrutiny despite questionable or self-serving activities. Reversing this trend through, you're going to hate me for this, but steadfast IRS support could strengthen oversight and integrity across charitable vehicles. No, no, no. Oh, my God, young man. Kill yourself! But there's more to it. Philanthropy has increasingly become an expression of power. Giving is often based on the personal interests of wealthy donors, sometimes aligning with societal needs, but also undermining or contradicting them. This raises concerns about inherent tensions between philanthropy and democracy. While modern philanthropy does provide huge benefits, for instance, wealthy donors across the political spectrum successfully alter public policy through philanthropy. 
Over $10 billion annually funds such ideological efforts in the U.S. alone. Now, I guess we can say it's debatable whether this constitutes undue influence on democratic processes, but ultimately, we must determine if it's acceptable for philanthropists to wield such unchecked power to advance their own personal visions. Journalist Jane Meyer documents in her book, Dark Money, the hidden history of billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. Wealthy donors are funneling tax-exempt funds to think tanks and advocacy groups to further a wealth protection agenda in the political arena. The power of wealthy philanthropists is a cause for concern. They use their money, sometimes supplanted by taxpayer funds, to influence government policies far more than any average voter would be able to. They can easily set up nonprofit think tanks to promote policies that align with their interests. I don't hear any thinking going on in there. And then can even use public resources to support their endeavors. Taxpayers provide an annual public subsidy of $110 billion to charities which is more than the budget of the energy or labor department. Therefore, the issue of wealth inequality has now filtered down to the very charities meant to help society. John Rawls, a key figure in liberal philosophy, emphasizes the moral duty of citizens to pay taxes to support the disadvantaged. In Rawls' view, this forms a part of the social contract where individuals contribute to the collective welfare, ensuring that even the least advantaged are cared for. After fulfilling this duty, Rawls suggests that the wealthy are free to use their remaining income as they see fit. This approach aligns with his principles of justice, which prioritize basic liberties, equality of opportunity, and improving the lot of the least advantaged. And if you're thinking to yourself, that's some liberal mumbo jumbo tree hugger, everybody gets a metal philosophy, I guess you're not wrong. So what do you think Adam Smith would say? Yes, the invisible hand Adam Smith, often regarded as the father of modern capitalism and conservative economic thought. The same Adam Smith who, let's face it, his thoughts were bastardized and rewritten with the emergence of the post-war Chicago school economics led by Milton Friedman and a few others. Well, Smith surprisingly shares some common ground with Rawls when it comes to taxation. Smith advocates for a fair distribution of taxes, arguing that the rich should pay proportionally more than the less wealthy. His concern was not even totally grounded in moral principles, but in economic pragmatism. He believed that unfair taxation, particularly that which overburdens the poor, was detrimental to the economy's overall health. The economy itself is often misunderstood because it's complex and amorphous, and let's face it, we don't have time for that. So, and mostly through no fault of our own, it's pushed on us in advertising, on TV. Even our 401k is an example of this. But the excessive focus on the financial sector, including stocks, portfolios, and growth metrics, is just a minute part of its financial aspect. The economy encompasses all activities related to production, exchange, and consumption of goods and services involving human labor and everyday transactions. While finance is important, it represents only one part of a larger system that also includes the day-to-day -day economic experiences of individuals and communities. Understanding the economy fully requires considering both its financial and human elements, recognizing that it's not just about numbers and markets, but also about how these factors impact real people's lives. And I know this seems like it's off topic, but I'm trying to make a larger point. The poor tend to spend a larger proportion of income on necessities, meaning money given to lower-income households circulates quickly and stimulates economic growth. In contrast, the wealthy often save or invest more, leading to less local circulation. Therefore, concentrating money among the rich may not have the same positive economic impact as distributing it among poorer segments. Think of the economy as a garden and water as money. In this analogy, the garden represents the economy and the plants in the garden are the various businesses and workers. Water is essential for the garden to grow and thrive. Let's look at it in two ways. The first 
watering with a sprinkler. This constitutes spending by the poor. Imagine using a sprinkler to water the garden. The sprinkler distributes water evenly across all plants, similar to how lower-income individuals tend to spend their money. Each plant gets a fair share of water, ensuring that the entire garden can grow. This is how poorer or middle-class households work, where the money they receive is quickly spent on goods and services, nourishing the whole economy. Now let's look at the second method, using a drip irrigation system. or spending by the rich. On the other hand, consider this drip irrigation system where water is delivered to specific areas in a controlled manner. This is akin to the spending habits of wealthier individuals who might invest or save a large portion of their money or spend it in specific, often high-end areas. While certain parts of the garden receive adequate water, other parts might not get enough, leading to uneven growth. In this analogy, just as a garden requires balanced and widespread watering for all plants to flourish, an economy needs balanced and widespread spending for all sectors to grow. Concentrating wealth and spending in the hands of a few can lead to unequal growth and missed opportunities for the economy. Just like how certain parts of the garden might wither without sufficient water. However, tax breaks for philanthropists have turned giving into that drip irrigation system. And not only that, these tax breaks mean they don't solely donate their own money. Ordinary taxpayers are indirectly subsidizing hand-picked causes for the rich. Further, few foundations meaningfully support grassroots efforts that empower marginalized groups. Most avoid challenging the inequities found in capitalism or promoting any reforms around taxation, regulation, or corporate governance. Most help maintain existing power dynamics rather than spreading prosperity. In recent decades, surging philanthropy has not alleviated soaring inequality. If anything, the two appear correlated. Credible arguments suggest that increased giving may exacerbate divides by eroding tax revenues for redistribution, providing minimal economic relief, and helping the wealthy avoid the demands for higher taxes. And this brings us full circle to Elon Musk's viral Twitter exchange about solving world hunger. His flippant challenge to the UN belied the reality that Musk himself exploits charitable giving for personal gain. In late 2021, a few weeks after the whole tweet firestorm with the UN, another one arose as Musk sparred with politicians including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren over inequality and a proposed tax wealth. So when Senator Elizabeth Warren took the bait and tweeted, Let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. Musk was given a chance to respond with this mock nobility, shooting back. And if you opened your eyes for two seconds, you would realize I will pay more taxes than any American in history this year. Ouch. Musk had won the Twitter war. Because on paper, he had a tax bill of over $11 billion. But do you think the tax code is as rational as that? Let me put it this way. He's paying this tax only because he had no other rational choice. Let's explore why, because this is important. 
Musk had a mammoth tax bill out of necessity and not choice. You see, back in 2012, Tesla granted him stock options that would expire on August 13, 2022. Musk had the choice to exercise those options along the way as they vested, which would have allowed him to pay reasonable taxes on more affordable share prices. But he declined to do that. Instead, he waited until the very last minute before expiration, by which point the stock had skyrocketed astronomically in value. Essentially, what Musk did was find himself forced to pull the trigger and incur the bill. Why? Because if he let the stock options expire, he would miss out on buying more Tesla shares at just $6 each, a stock that had grown to be worth more than 30 times that. He had no other rational choice but to take the tax hit. So in summary, Musk's eye-popping tax payment is less than an act of noble duty and more the result of personal decisions that left him cornered into an expiring situation with only one rational outcome, stomaching the tax bill. His tax burden was unprecedented, but it's also the product of his own failure. Remember at the top when I said we didn't know who received the mysterious donation from Musk? I lied. What? How can you do this? This is outrageous. It's unfair. How can you be a liar? I did. Because the mystery recipient of a $5.7 billion donation Elon Musk made in 2021 was revealed. The money went to Musk's own charitable foundation, as reported by Bloomberg in December of 2022, citing a tax filing obtained by the outlet. The Musk Foundation held $9.4 billion in assets at the end of 2021, according to this tax filing, and it sent out about $160 million to nonprofits last year while holding on to the rest. And that's the most they've ever donated, by the way, in a calendar year. The billionaire's largest gift during that period was $55 million to the Memphis-based St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, followed by $54 million to the XPRIZE Foundation, which he partnered with in 2021 to create a prize for carbon removal projects. Other donations listed on this tax form show Musk following through on some promises to school districts and nonprofits in the area around Brownsville, Texas, near his SpaceX spaceport in Boca Chica, Texas. Elon has bragged about his taxes being super simple, even going as far as to say H&R Block could easily do them because they're so straightforward. But the simple fact was that facing an immense tax bill from exercise Tesla options, Musk donated $5.7 billion in company shares to charity. Through this donation to his DAF, he likely reduced his tax exposure by up to 74%. This magnanimous act may have generated glowing headlines, but it obscured where the money ultimately landed. Musk's foundations make contributions to worthy causes, it's true, but they reserve most gifts for the black boxes of Fidelity Charitable and Vanguard Charitable. So while Musk publicly postured about eliminating world hunger, privately, his giving apparatus channeled billions in untaxed money to undisclosed recipients for an unspecified timeline. It's a microcosm of the whole daft dilemma and personal use of humanitarian as a whole. A notion of charity transformed into an engine for the ultra wealthy to multiply wealth rather than spread it. An arena where generosity doubles as a strategic corporate maneuver, providing financial, political, and reputational advantages. In many ways, Musk epitomizes the charitable paradox seen across the billionaire class. Public accolades are bestowed for outsized donations, while the vehicles used allow vast sums to gather dust rather than reach those in urgent need. For all of Musk's posturing about solving world hunger, Billions instead sit idle in his opaque charitable foundation right now. And this is a man who obviously embraces the spotlight, who thinks he deserves it. Musk, along with Bezos, Gates, and Michael Bloomberg in particular, have sought to leverage their success into more fame, influence, or power. And they use charity as a tool to wash and scrub away the destruction they have wrought on the very people they say to be helping. 
It reflects structures enabling billionaires to determine the public good based on self-interest rather than democratic consensus. Reforms to encourage prompt, transparent, charitable disbursements could begin realigning elite philanthropy with its intended function. Spreading prosperity equitably rather than concentrating power. And listen, it's a misnomer that people who make money don't pay their fair share in taxes or society or aren't generous with their time and charity. And the focus of this piece really isn't on them. I mean, no offense, but if you make a few hundred thousand dollars a year or or probably even a million, you don't wield power like Warren Buffett. You don't get to influence policy and subsidize it all at once. And you don't get a seat at the table with a senator and cut a check for the next election right in front of his face. And I get it about taxes, income tax, sales tax, sin tax, whatever the fuck those utility taxes are on phone bills and cable bills. It's not fun. And it certainly isn't sexy to understand taxes, but it's hard to see their importance because they're not upfront. They're not evident. We live with them all the time. Let me try to explain it this way so you understand it a little better. Think of taxes as the bass player of society's band. Just stay with me. If you made it this far, you might as well get to the end. They're not always in the spotlight, but they're crucial for keeping the rhythm of our daily lives going. These unsung heroes fund more than just the obvious stuff. They keep the emergency services ready for action, from cops to mountain rescue teams. They turn public libraries into cool hubs of free internet and events and make sure our streets aren't moon craters pulverizing our wheels and that we have streetlights that actually work. Taxes give life to parks and pools, fund the crayons and soccer balls in schools, and deal with the less glamorous but vital stuff like trash collection, for instance. They subsidize our bus rides, help veterans adjust to civilian life, keep public health ticking, and even fuel future innovations with science and tech research. Plus, they ensure our workplaces and food are safe and keep arts and culture within everyone's reach. Without taxes, we'd be missing the beat that keeps society's tune playing smoothly. Sure, they're not the lead singer or the cool-ass drummer whose arms are flying back and forth, but without the bass, the whole band falls apart. You suck! The thing is, I understand it. I totally get it. Why wouldn't anyone want to avoid their own civil duty when there's fucking creeps out there like Jeff Bezos avoiding taxes and then flying his ass to the moon? And then there's Musk. Poor Elon Musk. And you might be asking, why so much focus on Musk? Well, since you asked... Elon Musk oversees companies that have disrupted major industries, from electric vehicles to social media. Through SpaceX's Starlink, Musk has the power to provide or deny internet access in conflict zones. The Pentagon and NASA rely on his rockets. Tesla dominates the electric car market. His unique influence shapes global affairs. This was evident when Musk spent $44 billion dollars purchasing Twitter, a platform he uses to spread questionable theories, basically because he wanted to own his favorite shit-talking app while he could have coughed up $6 billion out of his ass for starving people around the world and still bought Twitter five or six times over. When the wealthiest private citizen who controls communication infrastructure over war zones gives credence to conspiracy claims, it's concerning. Musk has a real capacity to shift geopolitics. So when he focuses on indulging personal whims over social needs, it raises reasonable alarm given its impact. And now he can amass wealth tax-free in a death for as long as he wants and influence schools, cities, pet projects, and political parties whenever and however he likes. The saying is that money talks, but if that's true, then wealth whispers. Because the men mentioned in this podcast aren't the usual types of elite. Most are quiet, 
and like to use their influence to keep things status quo. Happy to let you bitch about the aforementioned names above. Happy to keep their wealth generational. Happy to keep their power to be flexed from afar and their lifestyle untouched. Philanthropy is one of the many tools at their disposal. The distortion of charity into a tool of influence rather than economic empowerment profoundly undermines its role in society. And that's been a struggle since before money was invented, probably when people bartered. And hey, I get it. Money, power dynamics, taxes, wealth distribution. These are true debates to have, but they should be out in the open. And it's a special kind of sickness to use charity and parade yourself as a philanthropist in an effort to make sure you can accumulate more than those people will ever see in a lifetime. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. No visible means of support.